Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, Child and Teen Development Specialist, author and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together and we have some great people helping us along the way. We've talked quite a bit about girls on the show and how many things are changing for girls due to the momentum of the women's movement. But what about the boys? How do you raise boys to become great men? How do we raise boys to feel connected to themselves and feel connected to others? For many of our sons, while the world of girls seems to be expanding, the world of boys seems often to be contracting, restricting who boys can be in society where masculinity and its attributes are guided and guarded by a tightly confined box, the man box. Our next guest feels that this is a loss. It's a loss for us and it's a loss for the boys. He asks, what can be done to ameliorate the losses of boyhood? How can we protect the boys in our care from threats built into boyhood? How can we ensure that our sons are well prepared for and well launched to manhood? The answer has to do with connection, something that our boys are losing and at an early age. And our guest feels that we have an opportunity right now to change things around and help boys do boyhood right. Michael Reichert writes in his new book, How to Raise a Boy, that boys are really in need of something that seems to counter the toughness and the independence touted by the man box. And that is a relationship in which a boy can tell that he matters. A young man's self-confidence is not accidental or serendipitous, but derives from experiences of being accurately understood, loved, and supported. Michael Reichert is an applied and research psychologist who has immersed himself in clinical research and consultation experiences that have afforded a deep understanding of the conditions that allow a child to flourish in natural contexts, families, schools, and communities. He has created and run programs in both inner city communities and in some of the most affluent suburban communities in the world. He founded and continues to lead the Center for the Study of Boys and Girls' Lives, a research collaborative at the University of Pennsylvania, and has conducted a series of global studies on effective practices in boys' education. Since 1984, Dr. Reichert has maintained a clinical practice outside Philadelphia and specializes in work with boys, men, and their families, and continues to serve as a supervising psychologist at a nearby boys' school. He has published numerous articles and several books, including Reaching Boys, Teaching Boys, Lessons About What Works and Why I Can Learn From You, Boys as Relational Learners, and the just-released How to Raise a Boy, The Power of Connection to Build Good Men. I'm so thrilled to have you on the show, so welcome, Michael Reichert, to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Hello, Robin. 
great to be with you and with your listeners. And I have to say, I, I loved your uh, your introduction. I think that you really nailed it in terms of what it is that I'm trying to speak to. Oh, well, thank thank you. you. Thank you. That's a wonderful compliment. I really enjoyed your book. I, I think people know that I, when I'm preparing for these podcasts, I, I really love to consume the book and think about the book and really get into the author's head so that I can understand what is the message that you're trying to send. And it is such a good one. Before we get into the book and all that you are relaying to us, for those who haven't gotten their hands on How to Raise a Boy, I would love to know what gets you up in the morning and what got you so interested, so focused, so passionate about raising boys to become good, healthy, connected men. You know, I've, I've, uh, I've thought about that a lot, of course, and uh, there's many different streams, I think, that fed that river, including the fact, beginning with the fact, perhaps, that I was one of five boys in a family of six children. Wow. Um, my, my family was doing boys big time. <laughs> yes. My sister used to wake up having nightmares. The boys are going to throw me out. <laughs> Um, my poor sister. (laughs) She survived. (laughs) Yeah, she did. Um, and, uh, then I had two sons of my own and, uh, uh, most recently I've had a grandson. Mm. So there's some intergenerational, there's certainly an intergenerational stream, but you know, I, I also came of age in the, in the period of time in which our society was undergoing some dramatic and profound uh, changes, including the women's movement that challenged men and boys to, uh, to consider uh, practices, unequal practices and privileges that, that weren't particularly um, suited to uh, 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 building close relationships. Mm. You know, instead, relationships of dominance and submission seem to be the rule. And, and you know, pulling out that, that, that puzzle piece uh, uh, caused a lot of things to, to come into question. Uh, and, and what I say to audiences of parents now, and I've been doing a lot of talking to parents over the last, last several years, what I say to parents is I don't think there's a better time in human history to raise a boy I think we're actually getting serious about the science of male development and uh, considering with new eyes and new rigor the kind of outcomes that we've normalized in in male development for generations. Mm. Mm. I I say in the book, and I'm sure you, you saw this line, but it's worth repeating, I think, that routine casualties and losses are an inconvenient truth about the boyhood that we've designed and that we manage for boys. You know, the losses are of, of virtue, the losses of educational opportunity, the losses of emotional expressiveness, uh, losses of uh, health and well-being, mm. and most seriously, losses of life. Mm. You know, mm. males predominate in the 15 to 30 age category in, in the 15 leading causes of, uh, of death, hmm. premature and preventable death. And we've normalized all that for generations, assuming it's just how boys are, you know, this, this notion that biology is destiny and that uh, we just have to resign ourselves to this fact that 
this is who males are. And uh, I just don't think we're we're willing to do that any longer. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's it's really important what you're talking about, and you're touching on this concept of the man box that you've, you you talk about in your book, this very confined space that we often allow boys to reside in. Can you tell us about this man box that clearly creates these boundaries and feelings of shame if we skirt around it or get out of it or even on the side of it, and how it disconnects boys from who they are as well as who they can become? Sure. So the man box is is one of several metaphors that describe the impact of masculine norms on boys' and men's lives. The idea that there are certain behaviors that are prescribed and that if boys uh, stray from those prescribed uh, uh, norms, they get policed back into the box, bullied or harassed or made fun of or humiliated. And these messages, Robin, what we know is that they don't just come from peers. Peers may operate as the, you know, the sort of the immediate uh, policeman Mm -hmm. of the man box. But, you know, one of the studies that I cite in my book found that 60% of the young men in in one survey reported that they, they heard these messages, these norms, they learned these norms from their parents. Right. You know, we pass these ideas about what it what it means to be a male on to children beginning almost be at the point that they're conceived. Yes. I tell a story about a friend of mine who was carrying twins. Yes. Uh, and she was a biology teacher um, in a local school. And she said that she knew that one was a boy and one was the girl. And she said, I know which one's the boy. And I, I, I was surprised. And I said, how do you know? She said, he's the one who kicks me. Yes, I remember that part of your book. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, 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 we uh, project onto the concept of boy all these inherited ideas which really have very little to do with boys' actual natures. Right. And we gender them, you know, using that term as a verb. We, we train them and police them into conformity mm-hmm. in a way that robs them of really important developmental conditions and assets, the most fundamental of which is freedom, you know, the freedom to be themselves. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. So we find that the men that most fully subscribe to those masculine norms, those traditional masculine norms, wind up being uh, uh, the ones that are most likely to be depressed, anxious, to harass uh, other people, to bully and be bullied, and, and to feel suicidal. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, that, 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 that loss of freedom, the loss to be yourself. And, you know, unfortunately, in that man box, if you are, in fact, hiding who you really are, um, unable to really express your heart or let anybody in on what's truly going on with you, uh, you are more likely to feel separate and alone and uh, to, to, to not enjoy any of the uplift that comes from being connected. And, you know, we're not built, we human beings, we're not built to be disconnected. We don't tolerate that well. Right. 
Right. We want to feel connected. It is really what we aspire to in life. I I feel like because of the nature of this podcast and, and so much is about the need to converse with others and connect in the in the sense of, of not hiding the truth, but making sure that our kids understand what's really going on. I would like to know from you how we can talk to boys about this man box as if, you know, it seems like we really should be putting high beams on it and saying, this is here, this is out there, don't get in it. So, or or if you are in it and you feel like you want to get out, that's okay. So how how can we bring this to light for boys and really talk about it, whether we're parents or, or teachers or coaches in their lives? Yeah, it's a really important question. <clears throat> because I think that that uh, so many of us, uh, 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 you know, essentially in charge of boyhood, mm-hmm. parents, teachers, coaches, youth leaders, we want to educate boys about being men, being yes. being male. And the problem with that, of course, is that uh, those of us who are in the prior generation uh, wind up inadvertently passing along mm. prejudices that we're just simply not aware of, that we take for granted. Right. Um, the, the gender landscape, the world of boys and girls, particularly in this present generation, has changed dramatically. And so what I say to parents particularly, or to teachers when I speak to audiences of teachers, is it's less important what we say to boys about masculinity uh, than, than what we are able to create in the way of opportunities for them to talk to us. Mm-hmm. Um, if we can create conditions that let them open up to us and be honest with us about what their experience of school is or what their experience of playing on that, that baseball team is like or what going to the playground is like, if we can create a space in our relationship with them where they can open up to us spontaneously. Uh, They're going to talk about their life as boys, and they're going to use us as what we psychologists call holding environments. Hmm. We're going to receive from them the raw data of their experience. They'll dump it out, and and as they do that, they'll actually strengthen their ability to resist those cultural norms that threaten to take them away from who they are. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I know your podcast is called How to Talk to, to Children, but actually I think I want to emphasize in, in, in my talks, uh, I want to emphasize listening to boys yes. as the starting point. And I could say a lot about that. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting because somebody, um, when I get interviewed about how to talk to kids and they ask me what the top my top top my top tip is i always say that while it's important to talk to kids about all different types of topics um that listening is is really the most important ironically um and and being there to to receive the information without judging it through the cultural norm right through the fact that, oh, well, you shouldn't be feeling that way. You should shrug it off. You got to man up and you can't let people know that that's how you're feeling. That you as the key adult 
can reflect back to them that this is a, a safe place to talk and that this is, uh, you could say anything and it's okay and this is who you are and I accept you as, as you are. And I'm always ready to talk. I mean, to, and, and listen to what you have to say. I mean, I think it's a really important concept um, that we are, are able to open up and listen to our boys and not assume, and, and so many people do, that, that boys don't talk, won't talk, aren't interested in talking. Isn't that right? Yeah, what we know just in terms of emotional, uh, emotional, uh, the emotional dimension of boys' lives is that it's not the experience of emotions that distinguishes boys and girls. It's the expression of emotion. Mm -hmm. And expression of emotion follows what we call feeling rules, which are determined by society. Mm -hmm. So we teach boys beginning very, very early. My two-and-a-half-year-old grandson is learning these feeling rules, uh, uh, it seems like, from everywhere. He's being essentially told that he shouldn't uh, 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 be sad or be scared, mm. that he should be stoic and, and be okay. If he falls and hurts himself, he should be okay, get back up and, and you know, display grit and toughness. Mm. And to do that to a two-and-a-half-year-old <laughs> that in a very natural and spontaneous way uh, is trying to let his pain out so that he can resolve it and, and you know, pull himself back together is to essentially uh, put a plug in, uh, uh, you know, this natural outlet and say to him, we don't want to know what you're really experiencing. Mm -hmm. We only want you to conform to our ideal of what it means to be male. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm just, you know, um, a psychologist at Stanford uh, for her doctoral dissertation under Carol Gilligan up at Harvard mm -hmm. immersed herself with four-year-old boys for two years and, and came and visited them, talked with them, observed them, talked to their parents, talked to their teachers, and spent two years doing this. Right. And it, it's a remarkable study. But basically what she found was that from the time that they, she first met them at age four uh, to the time that she ended her study at age six, they changed dramatically. Yeah. They became less direct, less authentic, less expressive, mm. less articulate. They went behind a mask and they learned to play the part mm -hmm. of, of what they presumed uh, uh, a boy was supposed to behave right. like. Right, right. I remember reading that in your book and and learning about her study a little bit more. And, and that, you know, I thought it was very endearing. On the one hand, we had the boy who was like, you know, pretending to shoot her and saying, you're supposed to play dead now. And then on the other hand, like crawling into her lap and, yeah. and, and wanting to, you know, be close to her. You know, one of your early chapters focuses on freeing boys and, mm -hmm. and talks generally about gender socialization, but more specifically ask parents and key adults to connect with boys through conversation. And it points to spending special time with boys, listening to boys, supporting boys to be themselves. But you're honest and you say it can be challenging to listen to boys and spend time doing things that our boys want to do without interjecting, without changing the plan, without modifying. 
So what's going on here? You gave us these tips that we should take time to be with our boys and listen to our boys and support our boys. But why are we having so much trouble doing these things and and draw out how we can make this happen in a positive way? Yeah, no, it's really important. I, I In the book, I, I, I describe three uh, strategies that parents can implement right away with their sons. Um, uh, the first being listening and the second being special time. But let me talk about special time since we have talked yes. already about listening a bit. The one thing I would add, though, uh, which is related to special time and listening or that, that unites them as, a, as, a, as sort of a central approach, is that uh, the greatest gift that we can give our sons is to pay attention to them. Mm-hmm. But summoning our attention actually uh, uh, controlling our attention so that we don't get distracted by our own worries or our our own um, ideas uh, is incredibly difficult, particularly when the, the, uh, the ideas that we have about how our sons should behave are often quite unconscious. I, you know, I, I did this global study of uh, about a thousand teachers of boys in six different countries, mm. and uh, two different studies actually, where we identified the relationship between the student and the teacher as the primary factor yes. in engaging yes. boys in learning. And what we found was that despite how clear boys were that this is what they needed, this was getting to first base with them. Despite that, teachers uh, essentially would forget that over and over and over again. Mm. Um, These are teachers that are in the trenches with boys every day. The evidence is under their noses. And yet when a boy would somehow thwart the teacher's purpose or seem checked out or more oppositional even Mm. than that, the teacher would forget that the connection, the relationship was the key and would revert to force, yes. dominance, control, and pressure. Right. Or, or scolding and shaming the boy. I mean, this is true for parents, too, clearly. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, what we found was that when the relationship with the boy uh, 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 becomes attenuated, becomes weaker, um, that boy loses motivation to engage in whatever that subject might be. Hmm. Um, because it really is the connection that provides the oomph, the motivation. It's for whom the boy will learn Mm. um, that matters. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then that's true whether it's a coach uh, or a a subject matter teacher. And and, and what what basically I determined was that from that study, I I went away and pondered that and thought, wow, this is such a, a, a significant and clear result what does it mean? And I realized that in the last 10, 15 years, well, with the development of the field of interpersonal neuroscience, mm-hmm. we've just gotten much clearer about the fact that human beings are essentially wired to connect. Yes. We have evolved as creatures uh, so that our brains are, are, uh, uh, respond with a real priority to relational uh, uh, stimuli and data, Mm -hmm. we need to be connected. And yet with boys, you know, we we put them behind that mask, we stick them in a man box, 
And when they act out in ways that displease us or upset us or make us frightened, we instead of responding with a relational response, what we tend to do is react out of, out of, out of upsets of our own. Uh, with force or domination what would be what would be the response that you would want to happen in that moment the child is is acting out the parent or the teacher is ready to scold correct redirect you know we're, we're we're getting dressed right now we're supposed to go brush your teeth right now we're we're doing math right now get your stuff now instead what do you want them to do first yeah so, so um, we'll come back and talk about special time, but um, uh, when we see evidence that a boy is misfunctioning when he's off course, you know, behaving in an unreasonable or uncooperative way, right. you know, using your example, the boy that is refusing to get dressed in the morning exactly. or refusing to eat his dinner at night or being mean to his sister, um, so you've been to uh, my house. <laughs> yeah, we've all had those houses, Robin. <laughs> you know, we all live there. And, and, you know, the first thing we have to decide is how urgent is this problem? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, does this have to get fixed uh, uh, right away, in which case we may have to be more forceful? But really what we're trying to do, we're trying to help our sons uh, self-regulate. We're yes. playing a long game. We're wanting our sons, we're, we're assuming that our sons are inherently cooperative people and that we, uh, because we matter to them, can influence them except when their emotions, their painful emotions of one kind or another are flaring and in a certain sense hijacking them, driving them off course. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, if they're demonstrating that they're off course, that they're somehow angry or scared or feeling uh, sad, whatever it might be, and they can't signal their need to be listened to more directly, they'll do it in an acting out way. Mm-hmm. And what that calls for is for uh, a, a limit setting uh, a strategy that I call listen, limit, listen. Mm-hmm. And the strategy really is about recognizing that instead of our forcing our sons into conformity, which in the, you know, that's the expedient solution, but not the long-term solution. Mm -hmm. All our children learn in that moment is they better be afraid of us. Mm. We're going to dominate them, shame them, threaten them, punish them. Uh, And you know, we used to think that, that that was the way that children internalize a sense of self-regulation. But the truth is, I think a much, a much more sophisticated model uh, for developing children's self-regulation is to step in as the parent and set the limit. Simply say, you know, Johnny, it seems like you're not able to be cooperative right now and do the things that you need to do. seems like something's going on. How about if I just put my hand here on your chest and keep you from, from you know, throwing your clothes around or, you know, uh, mistreating your sister? Mm-hmm. I'm just going to stay right here with you. And how about if you tell me what's going on? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you move into your son's space like that, not in a threatening way, but simply to say, I'm here. Mm-hmm. I want to hear. 
what's going on because this is not who you really are. Yes. Something's driving you off course. And then the real payoff in that moment, in that, in that exercise of discipline, isn't that he simply says, okay, mom, I'll put my clothes on. <laughs> you know, it's not the conformity. It's his outpouring of whatever it is that's driving him off course, mm-hmm. that he's unable to regulate within his own mind. He needs our help as his holding environments. Right. Right. I, actually, you're reminding me of uh, an interview we did recently with uh, Dr. William Stixrude, uh, who wrote The Self-Driven Child. And he, uh-huh. he talks about how you know, we need to, 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 instead of force and control and, and you know, make sure that this child is doing what they're supposed to do, that we, that we do stop and listen and that we are able to say something like, you know, it seems like you're struggling with this. Is there anything I can do to help? And it's amazing how things change when you come to a situation when your child is either misbehaving or just not doing what you want them to do. And they might not actually be doing something so terrible. It's just they're not getting dressed. They're not doing that. You are tuning into them and you're saying, is there something that I can do? in order to be helpful to keep you on course? Do you want me to set a timer? Do you want me to stand here with you? Do you, you know, because sometimes it's as simple. It's like my son won't necessarily tell me, but he does not like to go upstairs by himself. So he'll do all kinds of things that make it so, you know, that I would come up with him. And and some of those are acting out, right? So instead of just saying like, I just really want you to come up with me because we want him to be brave and we want him to go up by himself. And he knows that, that he'll do all kinds of things. So it's like, what are they really trying to tell you? It may not look like throwing things around, but it may look like procrastination. It may look like, you know, being silly. It could look at all kinds of things. It might look like willful disobedience. Yes. And he's he's right in your face. Yes. um, Yeah. And and so, you know, you asked me the question about... uh, um, uh, how it is that boys evoke yes. uh, often our irritation or our our upset or our anxiety because they're not displaying the kinds of behaviors, the respectful behavior mm-hmm. or the cooperative behavior or the um, you know the willingness to do handle their responsibilities, and it's exasperating to us. It is exasperating, yes. When it, when it, when it teacher or a parent or a coach is feeling exasperated by a boy's behavior, they're really not in a position to, uh, to, to, to do what I think the boy is asking them to do, mm-hmm. which is to know and love them. Um, what's required is that we recognize that the behavior is not really who they are. That's a behavior that's driven by some kind of emotion that they've not found an opportunity to put into words to express, to get off their chests. Mm. You know, boys are very, very, I'm struck with my two and a half year old, how, how um, astute he is at judging where people are at and how, um, how responsive he is to whatever it is that, that uh, we're communicating to mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. So your son, you know, who may not be able to really articulate that he's scared of going up those stairs mm-hmm. because he feels ashamed of it or he recognizes that, you know, it's not the way a boy is supposed to behave or he senses that you guys are 
likely to become irritated or urgent or impatient with him, mm-hmm. he's going to act that out rather than say, hey, mom, do you mind if I tell you how scared I am of going up those stairs? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and, and we just don't give boys that kind of direct access to emotional expression. Right. Um, instead, they have to find ways to act it out. And, you know, it's not an accident, uh, Robin. I'm going to go on out on the ledge here and say this. But, you know, the overdiagnosis of ADHD in, in male children, um, you know, the, the way that uh, uh, we way, way, way overprescribe stimulant medications to boys because we simply can't bear their behavior. Mm. It, doesn't conf- it doesn't fit into our existing classrooms or families drives us crazy, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to believe that, that you, know, we haven't, uh, you know, we haven't evolved as a species to a point where uh, males have this aberrant quality that, that, that shows up in this way. I have to believe instead it's, it's, some, it's the impact of our, 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 our models of nurture and you know, what we know about emotional energy that doesn't get uh, expended or expressed is it can it can seep into behavior in mm-hmm. all kinds of ways. I wanna I wanna be able to go back to the special time, but I have a, a sort of tangent question based on what you just said. And that is that when we do lose our patience and we do say things that we wish we didn't, one of the things in your book that you talk about is repair, which I really do appreciate. I, I think repairing your relationship it's something that I teach to my children. I do for myself. It's just part of who we are. I think it is monumentally important. And you say, by simply saying, I'm sorry for getting upset with you, even though I didn't like what you did, my my upset was more about my own experiences of being treated badly than what you did. I know you didn't mean to be hurtful. That boys are sort of less able to absorb moral messages when they feel insecure and abandoned. What what is it? What is it that you mean by that like how are we so influenced that we are are even having trouble doing this repair and what is the impact of how when we do do this repair on on our boys yeah it's a it's a it's a big subject and and i'll try to be succinct about it um the first thing I want to say is that every relation, you know, I don't want parents to think that because I'm describing the ideal, that I, I believe that any of us should should strive to be perfect. Yeah, I mean, good luck with that. Yeah, that's yeah. impossible. No. And, and that's not really what our sons require. Um, what they require is that we remember that they depend upon the relational connection in order to, to flourish. Mm-hmm. And that it's our responsibility as the adults, whether it's teachers, coaches, parents, it's our responsibility to be what I call relationship managers. Mm. That when we sense that the boy has come adrift, that he's become disconnected, he's withdrawn or he's acting out um, or he's being willfully disobedient, whatever it might be. Um, what we have to remember is that it seems, at, you know, that we have to believe, we have to infer that the relational connection has somehow weakened, and what our son is crying out for is a a deepening of their connection to us. And 
you, you'd be surprised, Robin, uh, in, in the global study I did, for example, of boys' education, um, we, we asked two simple questions. We asked, tell us a story about a relationship that went well. And we asked that of 1,500 boys age mm. 12 to 18 and 1,000 of their teachers. And the boys and the teachers were able to, to really uh, describe the same phenomenon, the same set of practices when it came to the relationships that went well. But when we got to relationships that didn't go well, what we came to call relational breakdowns, it was as if each group was pointing a finger at the other and saying they're the reason for the breakdown. Mm-hmm. Sure. So when, when parents, adults, uh, teachers, when they experience a breakdown in a relationship, often what we wind up doing is rationalizing the disconnection by saying he's the reason yes. that, 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 that you know, we are not connected right now. And, and this is the worst thing, um, I'm going to wait until he fixes the problems. Right. He owes me, you know, his homework that he didn't do, mm-hmm. or he owes me an apology for, you know, violating my trust or misbehaving in our home or lying to me. And one and, of the things you say in the book is that it's actually up to us as the adults to do the repair, isn't it? Yeah, because our sons, whether it's in classrooms or on sports fields or in our homes, our sons are actually at the outer edges of their vulnerability already. Mm-hmm. No kidding. And they, they are intimidated by our power. Mm-hmm. So many boys tell me, for example, that they're so afraid if they level with their parents about this, that, or the other thing that underlies some bad thing they did, that their parents will punish them even more. Mm. You know, they'll never get their, their video games back. <laughs> you know, they'll never get to go out on Friday night. And, and so they, they, they you know, the, the, the gap between them and their parents, the disconnection grows. So to say that the adult needs to be the relationship manager means that they need to ensure that the connection stays alive and strong. And that may be, you know, initiating the conversation. It may be uh, apologizing for my part in mm-hmm. the breakdown. Mm-hmm. But what matters isn't that the relationship remain connected all the time. That's unreasonable. Not going to happen in any relationship. What matters is that we keep reconnecting Mm -hmm. so that our sons have that vital life force of of relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you talk about that really is important here, and we can segue right back, is that special time that helps to do the reconnection um, along the way. So what does that look like? Yeah, I'm glad we came back to it. Um, well done. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's basically basically what we want our sons to know in their hearts as well as in their minds is that they are delightful and interesting people to mm, us, mm, mm. and that we're going to make a space in our family life where we're simply going to be with them wherever they are in their world, right? In, in their, their world. Terms, in their wheelhouse, not yes. ours. Uh-huh. So much of our time as adults with, with children is to require them to do something that we, want, we like to do, that exactly. we find interesting, that we want to do with them. And the problem with that is we're essentially dictating terms of relationship. We're saying, I'll be with you provided that you, know, you go to dinner with me. Or, <laughs> yes, <exactly. you> know, <laughs> you know, and and what, I, what I'm recommending is that in order to build an open channel 
of communication with our sons, we have to communicate to them that that we're open to who they are, whatever they are, are, are you know, whatever's on their mind. Mm-hmm. And one strategy for communicating that is to sit down next to them and simply be with them doing whatever they're doing. Mm-hmm. And with boys, you know, often that's video games yes. or, or, you know, kicking a soccer ball in mm-hmm. the backyard or throwing a baseball or mm-hmm. whatever it might be. Talking about rocks, <laughs> bugs. Yeah. Yeah. Collect- Sure. Yeah. My, I mean, I'm just talking about my son who's all science oriented. I'm like, That's all right, we're going to go with this. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I would have found that probably uh, a wonderful rescue from the video games I had to do way too many of. I know. He loves video games, too. But, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it, thankfully, the Science Museum is a great connector. So. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that what, so special time is where there's a, a time that's predictable and dependable Mm. where our sons can count on us being with him and that he gets to decide what we do with that time. Is it scheduled then? Like he knows in advance? Ideally, because Uh what we're hoping we can, we can help our sons come to expect and we're trying to build an expectancy into his, you know, the, the architecture of his life. Mm -hmm. We're trying to build his, his understanding that there will come a time this week when he will have our unbridled attention mm. and that he can do with us whatever he wants to do and that we're going to stay with him mm-hmm. and, and listen to him, enjoy him, go wherever his mind goes. Right. Um, one of my sons used to want me to take him, especially as he got older, 12, 13 years old, used to want me to take him to a field uh, back uh, behind our house, sit in my lap and drive the car. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it was harrowing. You know, I, <laughs> of course I, it was. I wouldn't do things that were unsafe, but, you know, I, I, I was still, <laughs> I, I had to let him put his hands on the steering wheel and take my hands off. But, you know, he just thought that was wonderfully fun because, mm-hmm. you know, it was one of those things that he didn't get to do, and I wasn't, you know, I... You know, I had all kinds of worries about what I was encouraging and, and, and you know, was he at 13 years old going to sneak out and take the car, you know? But uh, that wasn't what happened. Instead, what happened was he recognized that I was going to stretch myself out of my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to squelch his exercise of initiative and that I was really interested in whatever he was interested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, what's so interesting to me is that somebody once said to me that you have to bring them through, you have to go through their door to bring them through That's yours. Well said. Yep. I, yep. I really think it applies here that we can't really teach what we want to teach or uh, we can't have them experience our world when we're reluctant to visit theirs, to be submerged in theirs, to see what they love about theirs and uh, why they spend so much time doing these things or thinking these things. So I think I think what you're hitting on is so important. Um, and as far as making sure we're feeling connected. And that's really when it comes to the adults. But I want to shift our attention for a moment to, given that that when boys are disconnected, they may engage in behaviors that are both destructive to themselves and to others. So I'd love to shift our attention to friendship and what role friendship plays in in grounding them and allowing them to be 
their true selves because you detail in your book in different ways that boys in in many really strong friendships don't need to put on their masks saying that there's often a gap between what a boy feels and and what those are close to him know and and, and in these like pockets of brotherhood they may be able to take that mask off so can you speak about the importance of boys and brotherhood and and also give a word of advice to parents who are listening in who are finding that maybe their sons may not have those deep friendships and they may be worried. Yeah, so so researchers have found, Robin, that because of the, uh, you know, the, the together but separate nature mm-hmm. of boys and girls' childhoods, yes. boys are going to form their closest friendships, likely still, with other boys. And those friendships can be uh, 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 salvation. Um, What we know about uh, uh, what it is that actually strengthens a boy, that lets him believe he gets to be himself, that actually helps him resist uh, peer pressures that might pull him in negative directions, what really empowers a boy is some sense that he's got uh, uh, a friend someone who really cares about him as he is. And that kind of ally, we call it in in, uh, psychological research lingo, um, that ally is what enables a boy uh, to to, um, resist a whole host of uh, uh, sort of lower common denominator pressures. Um, So, you know, those those friendships can be life changing, and they can be life lasting. You know, some some boys find that the friendships they make in childhood or adolescence stay with them the rest of their lives and are deeply meaningful. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the researchers I mentioned who actually has studied friendships uh, uh, has boys telling her, you know, adolescent boys telling her that they would go crazy without their friends. That mm-hmm. that. Uh, And yet she found that there are pressures on boys that kick in in later adolescence um, that drive boys away from those deep connections Mm -hmm. to each other, Mm -hmm. primarily the fear, the the homophobia pressure, Um, the message that we send to boys that they should not be close to other boys, but rather uh, they should find a way to be close to a single female partner. Mm, mm. So that we have many adult men that, that often don't have friends right. at all. They depend upon a, a monogamous relationship of one kind or another. Right. So, you know, to the parent who I think uh, it struggles one way or the other with her, her son's friendships, what I say is, you know, I think parents can engineer opportunities because younger boys are so dependent on the adults to to orchestrate opportunity, right? Um, but but the parent uh, isn't really in the position to rescue a boy who's become paralyzed or who feels uh, at a loss. Mm-hmm. That's a boy who needs to uh, rediscover his courage or his agency, and and you know whatever it is that might be actually blocking him from taking initiative. That's the problem, mm-hmm. and parents can't can't supplant their initiative for their sons. 
that's that's a, again that's a short game, not a long game. Right. I think what we want is to somehow help our sons uh, uh, believe in their ability to find a friend, to make a friend, and we can simply help him, you know, discover that he wants that, articulate that, and then we can help him enact a series of, you know, initiatives, including, hey, can I help by contacting that boy's mom and seeing if we can set up a play date or... Mm -hmm. You know, you want to join that baseball team where that boy is instead of this other one where you don't know anybody, things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that that I feel like needs to be talked about is that men and women, mothers and fathers, that we may have some key ways that we can influence boys that may be different from one another. And so I'd love to know if there is something different that the role models, the parents, specifically sort of the men versus women, not to pit one against the other, but I'm, I'm getting at the new gender messages that they may be able to uniquely provide for boys. Yeah. What advice a... do you have for, for, for moms versus dads or, or men versus women in that regard? So, you know, I'm, I'm, there's a, there's a, there's a, a deep uh, uh, belief out there in our culture that there's something special about being a man and that only other males know the secrets of that special society, mm -hmm. that special fraternity. And, and unfortunately, that message operates uh, in ways that affect both fathers and mothers fairly negatively. Mm. What, it, what, the mes what that message conveys to mothers is you don't really understand your son mm. and you, you risk if you keep him too close, fostering an over-dependence that's going to actually rob him of his masculine independence. Mm. And what we know from research that studied mother-son uh, relationships is mothers behind that message often develop self-doubt and pull away from their son for fear of turning them into mama's boys. Mm -hmm. So the message I say to mothers is it doesn't take a man to raise a boy. Mm. Um, it takes a good uh, relationship with someone who knows and loves him. And mothers can do that. Female teachers do that in mm -hmm. schools. Mm -hmm. um, so that's number one thing to say. Number two thing to say, I think, is with respect to fathers, our job isn't to uh, teach boys about masculinity. Our job is to know them and demythologize what it is to be a man mm -hmm. by exhibiting our own personal humanity. Right. Um, and so the role model isn't really about, uh, uh, you know, how uh, to be tough or how to be strong or how to uh, fight for yourself. I think those are, those are, those are fine but they're not the end all of what we have to convey to our sons. Right. What we have to, I think, help them with really is how to be themselves yes. and to fight, fight for the right to be the unique and wonderful person that they are. Mm. So beautifully said. I think that's really important that it's not just countering the message of, of bravery and, and grit and solidarity and, and, and independence, but also that we, um, you know, with with other things like sensitivity and, and being emotional, but it's it's really bringing them out to be themselves. Yeah. And, 
Before we get to our top tip, because we're closing in at the end here, since we know there is a lot of work to be done when it comes to boys and helping them to break through that man box and reconnect with themselves and the key people around them, while at the same time we're hearing a great deal about the women's movement rising up during this Me Too era that's sort of stirring the way that boys and girls and men and women interact, as we talked about before, and what we'll tolerate and, and what it means to be a man in this world. Is there good news for parents of boys that they might find reassuring in this Me Too time? And if so, what is it? Well, you know, I, I'm, a, uh, I, I'm a, a strong uh, supporter of gender equality for boys' sakes as well as for girls. Mm-hmm. I think it frees boys from performing masculinity in these ways mm. that really do a, a great harm mm. to performing. The what an interesting yeah. term! Yes, performing it. Yeah. And what we find, by the way, Robin, is that boys perform masculinity not for girls, but for other boys. Mm-hmm. And, mm. It's to establish ourselves in a hierarchy that otherwise might threaten us. And group us, right? We're yep. part of the team. We're 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 part yep. of this. Yeah. To be included in yes. a in a in a in a hyper masculine performative team. So you know what what I think Me Too has done in, in the realm particularly of intimacy and and sexuality is to say, you know, intimacy, being close, it's wonderful, but it's not about force or domination or one-sided uh, gratification. In fact, it's that a, makes it less less meaningful, right? It's like exactly, not as good, right? Exactly. And, and, you know, there's lots and lots of, of messages that boys are getting to the contrary, beginning with pornography, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But I think what Me Too is doing is saying basically, uh, no, you know, um, that's not who we are. That's mm-hmm. not who we women are. And that's not who you are. And we're going to draw a line here and say, you want to negotiate closeness with me. Um, it has to be on equal terms and it has to be consensual. Yes. Yes. Very so the well good said. News, the, good yes. News, the good news is that I think that's what boys want too. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the, one of the statistics I, I, I talk about in my book with respect to hookups and teenagers, uh, teenage uh, uh, relationships is that 60% of boys feel regret after a casual sexual Mm -hmm. encounter Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. what they wished for what they hoped for consciously or unconsciously was some some more meaningful relationship right right so interesting and we've talked to Richard Weisbord about consent and our Harvard researcher that that's done so much work in this area and I think it is really important that we focus not just on the on the girls but on the boys i think it's just to put high beams on what you're saying that while girls are saying and in using their voice to say this is not what we want this is not okay we will not tolerate this boys are also saying right we don't want to tolerate this either we we don't want this for ourselves so that it's not one against the other but actually an an uprising and a and a change within the culture that influences both genders so I think that's terrific. Give us your top tip. What do you want us to come away with in terms of how we can raise boys who feel connected and, and healthy and well-loved? Yeah, so it's, just, it's, it's really just a simple, a simple summary statement, Robin. 
if we want our sons to hold on to themselves, we have to hold on to them ourselves. Mm. Right. That's what I would leave folks mm-hmm. with. Absolutely, absolutely. Give us your resource of the week. Where can we go to get more information about you, your book, your speaking, all the great things you're doing? So I have a website, michaelcreichert.com, and uh, I have a whole host of things posted there. Wonderful. And we'll have all kinds of links on our show notes for this podcast at drrobinsilverman.com for those of you who are, are outside enjoying this a beautiful day, maybe running or walking outside or maybe driving. Don't worry, we've got all of that covered. And I just want to thank you, Michael Reichert, for your insight and your strategies, all the great things that you said about how we can raise boys and how we can view boys in a different way that connects us to them and also connects them to themselves. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Glad to be here. Thank you, Robin, for your interest. I've got my takeaways and sweet friends, I know you have yours. So let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook. Let's go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page and let's chat about it. DrRobinSilverman.com or Twitter.com slash Dr. Robin. I'm also on Instagram at Dr. Robin Silverman. And if you love this podcast like I did, and it is timely and just a perfect time to talk about boys and the great things that they can be doing and how we can connect to them, I hope you'll go up to iTunes and rate and review it so other people can learn about my Michael Reichert and all the great things that he's doing and how we can use his strategies and thoughts in our own homes. I truly appreciate it. That's all the time we have for today. My fellow parents, leaders, and educators, thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. So many great podcasts are up there and the show notes to this podcast will be up there as well. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the day when you fall short, you've got this. You're here and you're getting the information you need. So if you heard something today and it challenges the way you've been raising your boys or you want to do something different, you can. This is not a mistake you've made. It is now the time to just do it a little bit differently if that is what you want. Remember, I know it's not easy, but there's always tomorrow. Parenting is the ultimate do-over. I see you and I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet sanity, please know you're 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. You've been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.